Matthew chapter number 6. As we're looking at the model prayer, uh, we come to our next phrase. Forgive us our debts. We looked Wednesday at give us this day our daily bread, recognizing that our Lord is in the is the one who is in control of the provisions that we have in our lives. That it is by His hand that we have everything that we have. By every blessing that we enjoy, it's by Him. And that's the acknowledgement of the prayer here as the Lord gives us direction here on how to pray. Uh, we, we begin there with worship, our, our place before God and the fact that He is our Father, which we have by the relationship in Christ Jesus. Uh, and uh, hallowed be thy name is the next phrase we looked at in the sense that, that He is holy and is to be made holy in our lives. And so it is an act of worship in our prayer. It is an act of worship in our lives to seek to hallow the name of God. Uh, and then the next phrase, thy kingdom come. Uh, we know his kingdom is coming. It's what we are, we are looking for his return. And uh, subsequently his, his kingdom to take place as he has promised. And we're given record of that, that event that would take place when the Lord would establish his kingdom as is given to us in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, as John gives us description particularly of that kingdom. Isaiah gives us quite a bit about it as well, as Isaiah describes prophecy concerning how the earth will be changed during that time of the Lord's reign on the earth. But we're, we're told of His kingdom, and so we know His kingdom is coming, and so it's part of our prayer, Thy kingdom come. And then the, the next phrase, Thy will be done in earth, as it is in heaven. We recognize God is sovereign. His will will be accomplished. His will be done exactly as He's declared it will be. And so it should be our desire as His people to see indeed His will done. And His purposes are performed just as He has set forth them to be performed. We need to be on His side in that because no matter what man does, no matter how man might behave before it, no matter what situations might arise in this world, no matter what situations might arise in our lives, God's will, His purpose is always done exactly as He has set it out to be done. And so it's incumbent upon us to be mindful of the reality of His sovereignty and understanding Thy will be done. As in earth, as it is in earth, as it is in heaven, as He goes on to say. And then well, last week, of course, we address the next phrase. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. He is our provider. He's the one that provides for us. And so today, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I didn't mean for that to line up uh, with this morning's message necessarily, but that's how it comes out. Uh, both, both messages in regards to forgiveness and what the Scriptures teach us concerning this. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That speaks to that daily cleansing. Uh, not only the, the big cleansing, the judicial cleansing uh, that we consider in this, but also that daily cleansing of those sins that come in our lives that we need our Lord uh, again to cleanse us from uh, that He speaks of there in 1 John 1. Now Peter says... In 1 Peter chapter 4, 
1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 8. 1 Peter 4 and verse 8. Peter gives us some warnings here in this passage. Uh, He says, um, For this cause, verse 6, let me read that. It says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, he says. And watch unto prayer. Be sober, watch unto prayer. And then he says, above all things, have fervent charity. Fervent charity. Not just charity. (laughs) But fervent charity. Have fervent charity. A fervent agape for those around us. says, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Have fervent charity, for it shall cover the multitude of sins. And so that's we, we need to be mindful of that in our forgiving one another. We, we need to be a loving people, charitable. Agape is that, that highest form of love. That is love extended without any expectation of return. That's the reason the word charity is put on that. is because it's, it is, a, it is a, a love extended without expecting anything back from that. John MacArthur uh, uh, speaks concerning forgiveness here and having that love in forgiveness. And he says this, this quote here. He says, the most essential, blessed, and yet most costly thing God ever did was to provide man the forgiveness of sin. It is most essential because it keeps us from hell and gives us joy in this life. It is most blessed because it introduces us into an eternal fellowship with God. And it is most costly because the Son of God gave up His life so that we might live. And so this this is what our Lord has done for us. And we discussed a little bit about this this morning in regards to the forgiveness that we have in God. Deliverance from guilt by real forgiveness is man's deepest spiritual need. Man needs this more than anything else and apart from it, apart from that deliverance by forgiveness, apart from that, he cannot enter into a relationship with God. And yet, again, that is what that that is 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 what man innately has in his very conscience and in his very soul is the need to connect with God. That's a remarkable thing that God has put in us. It's the reason that we have all the religions in the world we have today. It's because man desiring in some way to connect with God could not find the way or else did not like the way. And so, well, if I can't get it there, if I can't get it here, then I'll make my own 
religion. And that way I'll, I'll, I'll make my path to God, you see. And so this, this is the reason that we see all of this in reality because man seeks that place with God. But without that forgiveness, without that washing of sin, man cannot have a relationship with God. Because God is absolutely holy. And being absolutely holy, He cannot have unholy man connected with Him. There has to be a remaking. There has to be a a rebirth, a new birth that takes place in the heart of man to make Him holy before the throne of God so that God can have relationship, can have a connection with Him. Without that... Without that, man cannot be connected with God. And if he's not connected with God, he does not have forgiveness of sin. And if he does not have forgiveness of sin, he is condemned to hell. This is the reality of that scenario. That's the reality of the situation. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We have here Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. And I love this vision that Isaiah is given here. Isaiah chapter 6. He's given this vision of the throne room of God. And his calling by God to the work of prophet here that takes place in this vision that he receives. And Isaiah says, verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. So he has these, these seraphim that are gathered around the throne of God. And these seraphim had each six wings uh, two on their backs that they flew with, uh, two covering their face, being in the presence of the holiness of God there. They had two wings to cover their face, and they had two wings to cover their feet. And it says, one cried unto another. As they are there in the presence of God, verse 3 says, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah says, and the post, verse number 4, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. (laughs) Now he he gets a vision now of the throne room of God. Okay, there's nothing, I can't imagine anything, any place else that has more sure foundations than the throne room of God. I mean, that, that place ain't falling down, right? I mean, that, that, is, that is built like it's supposed to be built. There's, there's no corner skip there on the throne room of God. And Isaiah says, as those seraphim are crying out, their job, they're surrounding the throne of God, their job is to cry one to another the holiness of He who sits on the throne. Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as they're crying out one to another concerning His holiness, Isaiah says the doorpost of the room was shaking. And the room was filled with smoke. A God that is full of that holiness does not have a place for unholiness before Him. He does not have a place for wickedness and sin before Him. That has to be taken care of. That has to be paid for. That has to be taken out of the way. You see. He cannot possibly entertain relationship with unholy man unless there is forgiveness of sin. And that is why the Lord makes this the next topic in this model prayer here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 14 of this passage, there in Matthew 6, serves as a footnote for what verse 12 says. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, debtors rather. And then verse 14 he says, For if we forgive men their trespasses, for if ye rather forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your, your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's not saying we won't lose our salvation. That's not what he's saying there. That's not what's being told there. But he, he's, he's, talking about, he's talking about our fellowship with God being, being torn away. We, we being removed from that place, that fellowship with Him, that closeness and that intimacy, because we're holding on to, to other people's sins against us. We're holding on to other people's debts for us. That we, Wait a minute, wait a minute. They've done this, and they've done this wrong thing, and they've done this sin against me. I'm not forgiving them. I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to hold on to this. And so as long as we're holding on to that, and not forgiving them, then the relationship between us and God is also strained. And we don't have that closeness with Him. And John tells us, First John particularly describes to us that, quite frankly, if we are, the, he gives us the royal law there, Matthew, that Matthew 22 records for us in Jesus' words. Jesus said that the, the first and great commandment was to love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And the second, he said, is likened to it, love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, he says. These two commandments, that's what it comes down to. That's how we are to live our lives. To love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's, those are the controlling marks. Those are, those are the parameters that are set on our lives. That's how we are to live. Those two things being chief above everything else. To love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and love thy neighbor as ourselves. And then old John, there in 1 John, he spins it all up on us. And says, oh, by the way, if you don't do the second one, love thy neighbor as thyself, you can't do the first one. 
Because God ties those in together. And so if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, if you're holding on to those to unforgiveness with them, if you're not you're holding on to those hurts, you're not letting go of those things, you're not putting them before the Lord, if you're not you're not letting loose and, and, and forgiving your neighbor their trespasses against you, then he says you're not being a, you're not able then to love the Lord that he's called as he's called you to. Because we, we have to do the second one, he says, in order to do the first. So if we're going to love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and mind, then we have to love our neighbors ourselves first. We have to do that first. So John spins it up on us better and makes it a little harder. Because uh, we, we can understand loving the Lord. I mean, He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He's just. He does all things good. He's out for us. And so we can understand love Him. We love our neighbor. As herself. I mean, wait a minute, Lord. You know that guy. You know how dumb he is. You know how often he, he's, he's sideways to me. You know how often he, he's, he's hurt me. You know how often this guy is not where he's supposed to be. He says, love him. Love him. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Then we can say we love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And so this, this serves here, verse 14 and 15 here in Matthew 6, serves as that, that example to us that we have to forgive others their trespasses against us, that we also might be forgiven, that our fellowship might be restored with God. And sin is the problem in all of this. Forgiveness of sin is the greatest need of the human heart because sin promises to damn us. It promises to to condemn us before God forever while at the same time, not only is it condemning us, but at the same time it is robbing man of the fullness of life. Because it's burdening him in his conscience with unrelenting guilt to the point that he has to sever or has to sear, the Scripture says, his own conscience to live life. Because he sees constantly his failures against God. It's it's crying out from his own heart. Ultimately, sin separates man from God. Thus, it is unquestionably the principal evil and enemy of man. It's the greatest problem of man. Our own sin. Our own sin. Romans 3, verse number 10 down through verse number 12. Romans 3, verse 10, down through verse 12. He says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable 
There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Then verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all come short. We've all failed God in our sin. And sin is a king that rules in the heart of every man. It's the first lord of the soul. It's, it's a virus that has contaminated every living being. Sin is the degenerate power in mankind that makes man susceptible to disease and illness and death and hell. It is the, the culprit of every broken marriage, of every disrupted home, of every shattered friendship, of every argument, of every pain, of every sorrow, of every death. Sin is behind every single one of them. It's the basis for it all. Romans 3 there again, verse 13, he says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Sin is such a sorrowful, sickening thing in the heart of man. Paul equates it here to snake poison in us. Being filled with snake poison. It is the moral and spiritual disease to which man has no cure. In fact, Jeremiah writes there in chapter 13 and verse 23. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. He says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. If it were possible that the Ethiopian would change his skin, if it were possible that the leopard would change, you know what, the leopard don't care, he's got spots. He don't even know about his spots. But if he could change his spots, then maybe, then maybe we would be able to do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah is pointing out to us here in, in the Scripture, what he's telling us here is, is sin taints us. We cannot rise above our sin in and of ourselves. The sin nature, without Christ, the sin nature is dead. Our, our souls is dead in trespasses and sins and that it will not, we cannot rise above that nature apart from Jesus Christ. And so that means that we will continually sin because we cannot rise above that without Christ intervening for us. Sin dominates the mind. It dominates the will. 
It dominates the emotions and the affections. Sin brings men under the control of Satan. Sin brings people under divine wrath. And sin subjects men to ultimate misery, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Isaiah 48, verse number 22 Isaiah 48, verse 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. As a result of our sin... We owe a massive debt to God, and it is a debt that we do not have the ability to pay. We can't even begin to pay. It's what we were talking about this morning there in Matthew 18, when he describes that debt of that guy owed a owed a fortune and a fortunate, I mean. Again, that really can't be numbered today. We don't have the math even really to fully grasp the fortune that this man owed. And with all that he owed, he was forgiven all of it. It was wiped away. But then he wouldn't forgive the other guy who owed him a hundred days wages. This, this, this is a debt. He couldn't even begin to pay that debt back. And this is the debt that we owe to God. It is a debt that we can't even begin to pay. Do you, do you realize that we can't even begin to pay one payment? It's not, that we, it's not that we can pay and pay and pay and pay and never get paid. We don't even have a payment to give. You said, we, we don't even have anything to pay. It is a debt that we cannot even begin to pay. And anyone who desires to come to God must do so recognizing the severity of his sin before God and the magnitude of the debt that he owes. You can't escape that, that reality. And it is this forgiveness that is enjoined in this prayer. It is that forgiveness that is the solution for us. Since man's severest problem is sin, his greatest need then is that forgiveness. And that's exactly what God provides. Though we have been forgiven the the ultimate penalty of sin through salvation in Christ Jesus, we need to also experience God's regular forgiveness for the sins we continue to commit. But we strain that fellowship between us and Him. Now, first of all, we have that forgiveness we have in salvation. 
We are, we are clean in that. Our Lord has washed away all of our sins. Past, present, and even future. He's washed them all away. We're made clean before the throne of God. In God's forgiveness, we are made the righteousness of Christ before the throne of God. And we are justified completely. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the Spirit, but after the flesh. There is no condemnation at all that can be held against us. We are made clean before the throne of God in the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can be held against us. We We are made clean before Him. In fact, there in Romans 8, he says in verse uh, 34, or 33 and verse 34 there, he goes on to say as he's describing the Lord giving us that salvation, how he works it out in us, how he brings it to pass there uh, in those, those verses. He says in verse 33, he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who's going to to lay anything, who's going to charge us with anything if God is the one who has justified? He's the only one that charges us with anything, and He's the one that has justified us. Who else thinks they have a right to charge us with anything? That's what Paul's saying there. Well, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. You know what the accuser of the brethren does? He is constantly charging us before the throne of God. He is constantly pointing out your sin. He is constantly pointing out your faith. He is constantly pointing... Don't you see what he's doing there, Lord? You see that right there? He's failing you. He's sinning against you. Do you not see that? He's constantly... He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he is pointing out. Skin for skin. Tooth for tooth. Eye for eye. That's what Satan's pointing out. He's going by the law. He's a lawman, by the way. See there? Your law requires damnation, Lord. Look at there what he's doing. And Paul's point is, oh, wait. Yes, that's true. That's true. We deserve his damnation. Yes, that's true. We deserve that condemnation. But God in his grace has justified us. And if he has justified us, There ain't nobody going to remove that. Nobody's going to take that from us. And so he says, again, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justified. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And so Satan's there. See there? See what he's doing there? See how he's failed you there? And Christ Jesus, right there, I paid that one. I paid that one. That one's mine. I took that. He's there making intercession for us. Declaring we are forgiven. We are justified before the throne of God. And so Paul says, who's going to lay anything to our charge? It's, it's done away with. It's washed in Christ Jesus, you see. 
the extent of this forgiveness. We mentioned this morning there in Psalm 103 and verse number 12, that's mind-boggling. He says he, he cast it as far as the east is from the west from us. Never more to me. It's gone. It's separated from us. His forgiveness, by the way, is not free. God requires sin must be painful. It must be painful. But we cannot pay for it ourselves. We can't even pay for it with help. We can't pay anything. And so God in His grace sent Christ Jesus to be the sacrifice for us, for our sin, to be that payment for us. A payment we could not make. Christ Jesus intervened and made it for us. And became became our sin in our stead. Romans 3 again, verse 24. Paul says there in verse 24 down through verse 26. He says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, God's, God's holiness must be justified. So every sin that is brought, that is done before Him requires payment. And so He cannot enjoin the holy with the unholy and Him still be just. And so His holiness must be justified. And so His holiness is justified by making that which is unholy, holy. But in order for that to take place, then sin has to be painful. And that is the reason Jesus went to the cross for us. To forgive us of our sins, to take the payment for our sins, to make us holy before God in Him. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21, I think Paul words this probably most clearly here that you're going to find of any place in the Scripture of exactly what takes place in salvation for us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He says, For He, that's God the Father, hath made Him, Jesus Christ, God the Son, hath made Him, for He hath made Him to be sin for us. For me. For you. When Jesus died on the cross, He did not die 
to offer a blanket salvation to whoever wants to get under the blanket. That's not what He did. He died for me. He took my sin. Every last one of them. And bore it in my place. Knowing me while He hung there in my place. Knowing every sin, every unrighteousness, every trespass, every failure. He knew everything I would do and there paid for it all in my place. He took my place, was made sin for me. He who knew no sin. He knew no sin. that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That I, me, you, might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He came to die. He came to die for His people. He died in our place. And when the Lord by His great grace saved me, that was the one thing I knew. It was the one thing I understood. Jesus died for me. He died in my place. He died for me. He took my sin. Do you know this day? Do you know this day Jesus died for you? Not just that He died. Not just that He died for sin. Not just that He's Savior and Lord. Do you know? Do you know He died for you? That's salvation. That's salvation. I know, I know He died for me. If there were none other, He died for me. He died for me. And so by this act of Christ Jesus on our part, all of our sins, past, present, future. They're all forgiven in Him. All washed in Him. Now, there's a problem though that we're still in the flesh. We're still in the flesh. And so, those future sins that He's paid for, yes, He's already paid for those. But those future sins, those sins that we're still being still in the flesh, still dealing with this sinful nature, we're going to still fail it. We're still going to sin. We're still going to come short. In fact, we do it every day. Charles Spurgeon put a number on it. He said it was at least 10,000 times a day. I don't know if it's that many or not. I don't know if it's that little or not. It may be more than that. 
But we still fail him. We still fall into sins in our behavior because we've not yet been made perfect. We've not yet received glorified bodies. And so when we fail Him, when we sin, we're already forgiven. Those things will not be charged against us. But the problem is, is it separates me from God. It gets me out of whack. You see, I'm not where I need to be. My fellowship with Him is strained because I'm living in... The, I've allowed this sin in my life. I've allowed this sin a place, and maybe it's not just one sin, maybe it's a multiple of sins that I've allowed to, to root itself in there between me and Christ. And those sins there have made me dirty in this flesh. And separated me from God in fellowship. Though I'm still His. And, and I'm still washed by the blood of Christ Jesus. Those sins are already forgiven. But because of what they've allowed in my life, what's come in there, it has separated me from that fellowship with God. And God does not want His children separated from Him. He won't let His children stay separated from Him. He won't let that happen. You say, well, I know so-and-so said they were saved when they were 10 years old or 12 years old and they lived their whole life in separation from God. They lived their whole life apart from Him, just lived wickedly and unholy the rest of their life. Well, what that tells us is they were not saved. They might claim they were but if they can continue on in that sin, they can continue on apart from God. They can continue on following after the flesh and never, never having a place where God corrects that in them. Then that tells us they did not belong to God. They were not His. Because if you belong to Him, He's going to spank you. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. He's not going to let us go on. <laughs> He's going to correct us and straighten us out. Put us back where we need to be in Him. And so there is a need then for constant cleansing. Constant cleansing. And it's the kind that can only be given by our Heavenly Father. Go to 1 John and look with me what he says there in verses 8 and 9. 1 John 1, rather, verses 8 and 9. We'll read verse 7 with that as well. Look with me, verse 7. 1 John 1, verse 7, down through verse number 9. John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth. Well, let me, I didn't read verse 17. Let me read verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us. That's that daily cleansing. He cleanseth us from all sin. He cleanseth us from all sin. And it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you ever get to the place... In your life where you say, nah, I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm alright. I'm serving the Lord just like I'm supposed to. 
you're heading for a destructive scenario right there. You need to back off and say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not right. Because one of the things we find as we draw closer to our Lord, as we draw closer in our walk with Him, as we draw closer to our fellowship with Him, the thing that we find is more and more wickedness in us and the hatred for that wickedness we that we, we grow in hatred for that wickedness in us. Amen. The closer we draw to Him, the more uncleanness we see in us. The closer we draw to Him, the more wickedness we see in us. And so if you ever get to a place where you say, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, I'm not sinning, I'm living life good, I'm living just like the Lord would have for me to live then you're in a place far separated from Christ. You're in a place far separated from Him. You need to check yourself. Am I where I'm supposed to be? Because the closer you draw to Him, the more wickedness you see in yourself. And the more you hate that wickedness. And so He makes us, He makes us clean. And so he says, if we deceive ourselves, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First of all, why is he faithful? Because the payment's already been made. He's going to keep doing. He's going to keep doing what he says he's going to do. We've been washed in Christ. How is he just in forgiving us our sins? The payment's already been made. The payment's already been made. So yes, we failed today. Yes, we sinned against him today. But the payment was made already by Christ Jesus. So he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that fellowship that is strained because of our sin is now brought back in place where it's supposed to be with our God in the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there there is that need, there is that need for forgiveness that we might be brought in fellowship with Him continually. Each and every day. And so we need we need to be, God's people need to be and are a repenting people. Repentance is not just something that happens one time when you're saved. The moment that you're saved. Repentance is lifelong. Doesn't mean we're getting saved every day. That's not the case. But it is the fact that we recognize the sin in us and we are bringing it before the throne of God and seeking God's forgiveness in it that our path, our life, our day, our fellowship with Him is restored each and every day. That there's nothing between us and the Lord that we are made clean before Him. So we must confess our sins. He says that He is faithful and just 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unconfessed sin robs us of fellowship, it robs us of joy, and it robs us of intimacy with God. If you're not close to God, if you have no joy in your worship and service of Him, if you have no fellowship with Him and you feel so far apart from Him, it's because there is sin in your life that needs to be removed. Confess it. Confess it before Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because we have this forgiveness in Him, forgive us our debts, He says, as we forgive our debtors. Because we have this forgiveness in Him, we also then are to forgive others. As we look this morning at that that example that the Lord gives us there in, in Matthew 18, how, how, how big that, that example is. This guy owed an, an enormous amount. There's no way he could pay it. No way he could pay it. And he's forgiven that, but in turn he turns around this guy that owes him a small debt in comparison to what he, a very small debt in comparison to what he owed, he would not give him forgiveness, but rather had him cast into prison, debtor's prison, so that that could be paid off to him. If God has forgiven us so great a debt, if He has forgiven us so great a debt, and He is continually forgiving us so great a debt, why cannot we forgive our brethren also? Who owes us much less, much less than we owe God, or owed to God. If we enjoy the forgiveness in Christ, then we must be a forgiving people. Forgiveness is the mark of a truly regenerate heart. A heart that has been born again. That is the mark. Forgiveness. When a Christian fails to forgive someone else, He sets himself up as a higher judge than God. And even calls into question the reality of his own faith. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Go back up and read uh, 31 as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, 
have forgiven you. A child of God, one who has been forgiven this debt of sin, the chief mark in us that we have been forgiven of sin is that we are forgiving others their sin. That we're forgiving others their sin. Their debts against us. Second Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 and 11. Paul says, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan, he says, should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now what's Paul telling the church there? Churches that questioning this guy that had, they mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians that had uh, had that great sin. He'd taken his father's wife to wife. And, and uh, they presented that to Paul. And Paul says, well, you need, to, you need to boot him out. You need to hold him accountable for that and, and not fellowship with him. And so they, they put the guy out and he comes back to the church. He's repentant. He's desiring to be brought back into fellowship again with them. And so they write to Paul and say, hey, what do we do? We put him out like you said. Now he's come back repenting. Got his life straightened out and he's wanting us to forgive him. What do we do? Paul says, forgive him. <laughs> and if you forgive him, I forgive him. He said, we can't let... That's the whole purpose of it, he said. The whole purpose in church discipline, when we discipline someone from the body, the reason we are doing that is not to hurt them. Our purpose is to reconcile them. That's his purpose every time. So that they can see by that discipline brought against them that they can see that they are not only separated from God's people, but they are separated from God because of their sin. That it would it would put in their heart a desire to be brought back into fellowship with Him. And so Paul says, this guy's come back, Paul says, well, bring him back. He said, if you've forgiven him, I've forgiven him. And he says, we cannot let Satan get an advantage of us. When we hold on to other people's debts, other people's sins against us, and we do not forgive those things, Satan gets that great old big foot of his wedged right in there between us. We're giving him a foothold in those situations. When we are not forgiving, we are letting Satan have a place among us. And we cannot let him have a place among us. He has no right to be here. So forgive. Forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We must seek to manifest a forgiving spirit. To receive pardon from a perfectly holy God. And then to refuse to pardon others when we are sinful people. Ourselves is the epitome 
of abuse of mercy. When God has done so much to forgive us, should we not then be able to forgive one another? We must be a people that learns to confess and learns to forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's all stand.